Good morning. I want to apologize early for the sound and quality of my voice. I assure you I don't feel as bad as I might sound. Uh, I was going to add that uh, I trust I don't look as bad (laughs) as I might sound, but that's always debatable. Would encourage you again, with respect to this evening's concert, um, we've been looking forward to that for a long time. Uh, This is but a foretaste, if you will, uh, what you've heard this morning, so 6 p.m. this evening. Uh, Please come and join us. Matthew chapter 26 is our text. Matthew chapter 26. This text is obviously uh, near the end of Matthew's gospel, but uh, it's the center, uh, the heart. I believe, of the gospel. As many have observed, the gospels are not biographies of Jesus in any contemporary sense of that word. There are many things that we'd like to know from a biographer about Jesus, about his latter youth, his early uh, adulthood, and we're told really nothing uh, of those things. And I believe the reason is because the Gospels are an extended passion narrative. The heart of the Gospel message is about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're only told as much as we need to know of his birth and his ministry to make sense of that which he came in the world to do, and that was to die for his people and to rise triumphantly. So here, the gospel writer is not winding down and kind of tying up loose ends, but he's, uh, but he's coming to that point that I think he has been talking about throughout his gospel. And Jesus, in the opening couple of verses here that we'll read in just a moment, shows that he is not about to be caught up and swept up by events out of his control, but rather he speaks to his disciples as he's been doing all the way down the road to Jerusalem and tells them the Passover is a couple of days and I will be sacrificed. I'm going to die at that time, thus linking him to the fulfillment of the meaning of Passover. The lambs are going to be slain, you know, that John called me at the outset of my ministry, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I am about to be offered up right here at the moment of Passover as the fulfillment of all that which God's people have looked and longed for, the forgiveness of sin being made right with God. And once he has spoken, Matthew says, then the high priest and the leaders of the Jews conspired how they were going to silence him for good. And in a kind of consummate irony, 
The religious leaders, Jesus' enemies, want to do it in a way that will attract no attention. They want to do it very quietly. And yet, it becomes the most frequently told story and the pivotal story of all of human history. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The Lord help us to uh, hear and to heed this is word. This text, this gift given by a woman unnamed by Matthew, but from John's parallel account, we know that this is Mary of Bethany, uh, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. This text, I think, is really an issue, a call to worship for this final passion narrative of the gospel. And it is, I'll say by way of a personal confession, a text that is becoming in my life a paradigm, a model in really understanding and hopefully responding to the gospel message. In order, and in order to make it perhaps a part of your paradigm, your um, model as well, I'd like to pose four questions to this passage. And I trust that this story, a familiar story to so many of us, will be inscribed more deeply in our hearts and minds for having looked at it together this morning. The first question is, what did this gift mean to Mary? What did this gift mean to Mary? Matthew tells us that it was an alabaster jar of perfume, that it was very expensive. We learn from other uh, gospel writers more about the gift, that it was indeed worth the 300 denarii. One, dari- uh, one denarius, denarius, you'll remember, was worth... Uh, about a day's wages uh, in Palestine of the first century. So this was a gift 
that was perhaps equal in value to about a year's salary, one year's salary. And as you think about Mary's gift, think about it in the terms of perhaps your annual salary, your income for an entire year. Then imagine taking something worth that income and in one brief moment, profligately, lavishly breaking it and giving it to Jesus, just giving it away. Mary takes this very best that she had to give. And she doesn't say, Jesus, look, I have this valuable oil. And if you're ever in a jam, if you ever need anything, just let me know and you can have what you want. Nor does she get a smaller container and pour in a tenth or 20%. She doesn't do what we might uh, uh, might uh, very generously do with a valued treasure, a, a portion, a piece, you know. Lord, this is something of mine, and, and uh, I give it. But instead, she takes this thing, which is really only valuable for the beauty of the container and for the fragrance it gives, And she breaks this flask, this container, and the fragrant fills the room for but a few moments. And then it's carried away by the breeze and the air and is gone. And so extravagantly, she gives Jesus in that moment her very best in one irrevocable act of giving and devotion. It's a little bit different from the way that perhaps we've learned to give, to offer what's left over when I meet needs or other things. Uh, Certainly uh, not something as extravagant as a year's wage. And yet I believe this is always the pattern and the principle of Scripture. Abraham, that Jim read of this morning, whom the Lord calls to be this man of faith, at the age when he, uh, when we are already retired, and then for 25 years, between 75 and 100 years of age, God almost seems to toy with his servant by continuing to promise him a child, an heir. And over and over again, Abraham will try to to run ahead, as it were, of God's timetable and to help God out by fulfilling that promise. And God says no. Even to the point that Abraham realizes that physically he's incapable of having a child, Sarah, his wife, incapable of having a child, But at last, when it's so absolutely impossible that no one will doubt that it's impossible, God fulfills his promise to this old couple and he gives them an heir. He gives them a son, this promised son, this unique son. 
And then he lets him have that child for years and take great delight in him, his son, until that son is a strapping uh, young man, uh, apparently uh, old enough to haul a load of wood on his back up a mountainside. And after he's been, after there's been that deep bonding between parent and child, something that you can't explain, but perhaps only experience, this son whom Abraham and Sarah named laughter. God comes to him and says, Abraham, yes, Lord, take your son, your only son, this unique child of promise, this one that you dearly love, and go to the place that I will show you, and there offer him up to me there on the mountain. And even though Abraham got to leave that mountain with his child, some of us have not. You've had to leave that place without a child, without a spouse, without a job, without your sense of self-worth or dignity, whatever it is that perhaps was your greatest treasure. God is always taking his people to the mountain and saying there what he said to Peter after Jesus had risen from, risen from the dead. He said, Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? It was a principle all the way through the system of sacrifice in the Old Testament. You look out into, the, into your flocks and you look at the one animal that you want most to, to show off or, or to take to market, the blue ribbon one, the one who always catches your eye. And God says, that's the one I want you to give me in an irrevocable act on the altar to me. I want you to look at the first fruits of your income, that which is the cream of your labors, that which you treasure most, that which represents all your work, and I want you to offer that to me. And all the way down the road to Jerusalem, Jesus has been saying to his disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And the disciples have been debating in the background over which one was going to be the greatest when they reached Jerusalem. And Jesus assumes his rightful throne. They refuse to hear through their own ambition and pride and agenda. But Mary, this impractical woman, Mary, who was always sitting at Jesus' feet when others were doing, running around, doing those things. Yes, good, helpful, necessary things. But this Mary, who Jesus said elsewhere, had chose the better thing by sitting and listening and adoring, is the only one apparently out of this band of disciples who has understood that Jesus is going to give himself. Jesus is going to die and she has said, what can I do in my response for his love to me? How can I show him what I think of him and how much I love him? And so this profligate act of love 
She takes her most prized possession and she gives it, she breaks it, she lets its worth and value run over his body and be taken away in the breeze. Secondly, what did her gift mean to the disciples? Did it awaken them? Did they say, oh, Mary, now we see, now we understand what it's about. Now we realize that all our ambition and pride, that is the real waste. If only we had thought to do what you have done. Now the disciples say, what a waste. What a waste. Indignant, absolutely disgusted. Should not something this valuable be given where it can really do some good instead of this extravagant, lavish act? And we, we, we know at this point uh, uh, that um, just before in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had spoken. He had spoken to them about how to treat the poor and the disenfranchised. Aren't these disciples correct? Wasn't it Jesus uh, in the previous chapter in verses 31 through 45? Isn't Jesus who spoke of the, at the, final, uh, of the final judgment of the Son of Man coming in glory? Wasn't it Jesus who said uh, he would judge the peoples by the way they've treated the poor and the afflicted? those needing clothing, those needing uh, shelter, uh, those uh, who were outcast, uh, visiting the imprisoned. Aren't the, aren't the uh, uh, disciples um, 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 showing that they listened to Jesus and have learned the lesson he was trying to teach them? Uh, don't waste this. Jesus has just told us that he wants uh, this kind of thing to go into ministering to others. Uh, Of course, we read elsewhere that Judas, at least, made the argument not because uh, he wanted to alleviate suffering, uh, but because he was the keeper of the money purse and he wanted to pilfer the purse. But we read here in verse 8 that the disciples joined in. So how could Jesus then criticize them for, for seeming to manifest the truth of the teaching that he had just given them? The problem, in their words, is this, that the idea is that there is something which is too precious, there is something that is too valuable to give to Jesus in an act of pure worship. And perhaps if there's a point where the church needs revival and must experience revival before we will affect our communities and our country and our culture that so many of us want to have. It's at this very point. The Shorter Catechism puts it well. The biblical testimony in its first question and answer, what is man's chief end? Many can answer that. Man's chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It is in worship. It is in glorifying. It is in honoring God and in seeing all of life as worship and in seeing God's creation of this world as creatures made to worship him. Let me say something that might get me in a little hot water, but I hope not if you, if you listen and understand what I'm trying to say. I've heard others say the purpose of the church of Christ is mission. And that's not really true. I thank God that we might be seen as a mission-minded church. And I pray that in, in upcoming years, CPC will uh, have greater, be an instru- greater um, instrument of the Lord in the expansion of his realm beyond our geographical area uh, than it perhaps has been in the past. That God would be pleased to use us. Uh, and expanding and building his church throughout the world. But the purpose of the church is the worship of God. The purpose of all creation is to glorify its maker. And the redeemed are those who are now bowing the knee with joy and wonder giving, offering up the worship and praise that he desires. The purpose and goal of missions And a byproduct of worship is to enlarge that body of worshipers until those from every tribe and tongue and nation are rightfully bowing the knee to worship the living God who alone deserves praise. God has made us for that. Some may say, you know, about worship, well, I just can't relate to that stuff. It's so passive. It's so one-sided. I want to do something for Jesus. But the idea of of worship, you know, it just doesn't scratch my itch. I'm a doer. Well, that's a wrong view of worship. Worship is a verb. And I would say that many... (laughs) Maybe most in this sanctuary yesterday were entering into a kind of worship. You were entering a kind of worship as you were watching Tennessee and you were watching uh, uh, Georgia and, and Florida, you know, through television. Who says you can't worship through television? What's involved in worship? It's ascribing worth and excellence to another. It's watching someone, as it were, executing precisely a well-rehearsed, a well-choreographed play and saying, hey, did you see that? Did you see that catch? Did you see that block? Did you see that tackle? That was tremendous. I've got to tell it to you. Well, you really don't have to tell one another anymore because there's 19 replays that immediately follow any, any kind of play. But you're recounting and giving expression to the excellence, the value, the worth of what you've just witnessed. This tremendous athletic feat that comes from You know, this basic instinct that we have to worship, 
to worship. You look at the people, those stadiums yesterday and probably in a lot of living rooms, standing and cheering and waving their hands, captured, as it were, by the event. A virtual charismatic gathering. Because God has made us for worship. He's made us for worship. And the problem is that we're much more inclined and much more excited about worshiping others who may deserve applause than we are about worshiping and praising the one who alone deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, all worth. Mary saw this. The disciples apparently did not. And so they didn't realize what Jesus is teaching about the poor and the broken and the hurting was to be a manifestation of the law of love toward other people, which is a manifestation of the love toward the creator. But that the supreme act of love toward the creator is recognizing him for who he is and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And even at times, perhaps, performing acts that to other people who don't see him for who he is and love him for who he is will seem to be such a waste. The third question here is, what did Jesus think of the gift? Jesus says in in verse 10, why are you bothering her? Uh, she does a beautiful thing. She's done a, a beautiful thing for me. And it's interesting in looking at some commentators about this text that a number of them seem a little almost embarrassed at this point and say, well, Jesus was, was uh, being kind to her. He was, uh, she was... Um, um, obviously emotionally uh, distraught and shouldn't have made that kind of uh, ex- excessive, expensive, imprudent gift. Uh, but, but see how winsome Jesus is in his love for her. She's already done it. He doesn't ask whether uh, um, uh, she, she didn't ask whether she should do it. And, and he's not going to tolerate the disciples sort of embarrassing her. Well, Jesus seems to go a little far just to spare someone embarrassment. He says, leave her alone. Don't trouble her. She has done something beautiful for me. Jesus sees it so totally different. He he sees to the heart of this act. And he, in a sense here, is speaking before he assumes his his rightful ascended throne and pronouncing his judgment on our practical practical way of, uh, of dealing with affairs. He says, the poor you will always have. And by implication, he is saying, yes, I do care for the poor. I do mean what I, what I said before in, in the previous chapter. I, I do want you to care for them in my name. But there is no act of worship that is too great. There is no act that is too valuable. That's a waste if it's done for me. I 
And that even involves the things we give to the poor or to those who we might perceive in need. We often wrestle with whether or not to give because we might say, well, that's going to be used in the wrong way. And so we don't do it. And I believe if it's given to Christ, it doesn't matter what the receiver does with it. If you give your gift to Jesus as an act of worship, a response to him, here's the need, I have the means, then nothing is indeed wasted, no matter what others might do with the gift, because you've smashed your alabaster jar and you've let it waft in the breeze and you leave it to Christ as to how he might use that gift. And finally, fourthly, what should Mary's gift mean to us? Jesus says something uh, at the end of this text that should really grab our attention. He says in verse 13, truly, amen, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Doesn't that sound a little odd? I've heard many missionaries speak about the mission message and mandate. I've heard gospel crusades and evangelistic uh, meetings and all the rest. And I've heard of the gospel going forth into new places. But I don't remember in those times of the proclamation and preaching and heralding of God's good news, the gospel. I don't remember anyone telling the story of Mary. Why did Jesus make such a point of this and say, wherever the gospel goes in this whole world, this which Mary has done will be told of her? Was it just that it would one day occupy a few sentences in God's word, the Bible, which remains and stays? I don't think so. He's underscoring it in a special way. Jesus says, wherever the gospel goes, what she's done will be told of her in memory of her. And then in Mark's parallel gospel, and in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, we have these parallel accounts in the instituting of the Lord's Supper. Here in Matthew, in Mark, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus, two memorials that he leaves in scriptures, tell this in memory of her, do this in memory of me. Why? I think that here we come again to the heart, the center of what Matthew says in his gospel. His story of the ministry of Jesus and the thrust of his message out of all the other disciples who did not yet uh, really know what it meant to believe in Jesus because for all of his bold words, um, all of their bold words, they will in about 48 hours break 
and run. But this woman, Mary, and a little band of women will follow Jesus on to the end and stand with him as those people of faith until after the the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, this is what faith looks like. Over against all the words, the words of the men around me, all of the talk, Peter saying, though the rest desert you, I'll never leave you. Matthew says, this is what faith looks like. It gives its best in response to my love. And then we look at the next verses there in Matthew 26, verse 26 and following. As they come in the gospel account and he says, this is what God's grace looks like. It gives its very best to a broken humanity. God gives his son. Mary gives a treasure she has and breaks it. And God gives his most precious treasure, his own son for us. He's broken. He's poured out for us. And it's in this self-giving that God's grace does its work and embraces a life. And each one of these disciples who seem to, at this point, misunderstand the meaning of what Mary has done, will be called by and by to come to that moment of breaking in their own lives too, where they will have to put their lives on the line and be broken even as their Lord was broken. And so we cannot truly tell the gospel to the world. And we might especially say, Look to those who are persecuted for the gospel's sake. This is that time particularly when we're looking to those. We cannot truly tell the gospel to the world without telling that there is a breaking and a smashing and a giving of one's very best. That is at the heart, not of super spirituality, but of what it means, pure and simple, to see Jesus for who he is and to make our response to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of faith, this this gift of your grace that you gave her as a picture of what you'd have us be before a watching world that so desperately needs to see people who love you unreservedly and worship and adore you. We pray, Lord, that we'll grow into this kind of worshiper. And may that be beautiful in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.